Marshall, and you are listening to Things Observed. And today we are going to do our second part of the Son of Sam series that we're going to do, the final episode, just a two-part series. And I think that we've got a good show for you. So for those of you who did not listen to the last one, you might want to listen to the last one to get caught up with all the things that we're going to be talking about today. And just to refresh everyone's memory, we talked about the Son of Sam letters, we talked about some of the symbolism that is involved in the letters, and we talk about the actual sons of Sam, that Sam being Sam Carr. So we talked about John and Michael Carr, who both died mysteriously as the probe into the Son of Sam cult conspiracy was underway. And so we covered a lot of ground in in the last episode, and we're going to cover even more ground in today's episode. And we are going to be talking about Arliss Perry, Roy Radin, and the Cotton Club Killers, and a host of other things. But perhaps on the top of the show, at the top of the show, we should just cover the dogs because... um, referenced multiple times some of the ritualistic killing of dogs in both Untermeyer Park and in Minot, North Dakota, Minot, North Dakota. And it's just kind of been something that's been in the background of both last episode and our series on the Process Church of the Final Judgment. And uh, so let's just go ahead and get that out of the way before we get on to some bigger and better things. And what's more fun than listening about dogs being murdered? It's everybody's favorite sur- subject. It's a perfect way to lead in a date with someone if you're on a first date. It's a great way to warm people up. A great conversation starter to say, hey, did you know that um, in Untermeyer Park, which was, you know, just like a mile away from where David Berkowitz and the Carr family lived, that there was all these German shepherds that were found ritualistically slain some of them had their ears missing um you know reports vary and that there was anywhere from 200 dogs killed in a span of a couple years to some reports saying as many as 400 dogs and a large number of these dogs were either german shepherds or alsatian shepherds which is kind of like another breed of german shepherd and people love it People really get into it, and people are always excited to (laughs) hear you talk about that. But um, So yeah, anyways, I mean, there we go. Already covered some ground just in me joking, goofing off a little bit right there. But yeah, Untermeyer Park was right next to where Berkowitz lived, right next to where the Carr family lived. There was actually a path that led behind their homes to like the old Croton aqueduct i think that's how you pronounce it old croton something like that aqueduct um that goes underneath untermeyer park so for all you tunnel heads out there we've got kind of like a tunnel system going out 
going on and Mari Terry, the guy who wrote The Ultimate Evil and who's going to be our main source for both this last episode and this episode, he would go after figuring out about the cult aspect of the case and trying to piece together um, the whole Son of Sam investigation, he would go walk around Untermeyer Park um, with a teen who said that he had observed some dead dogs in the park and kind of get the tour and in this you know aqueduct tunnel type system um, sometimes referred to as the gutters and if you'll remember i believe it's the second son of sam letter it says from the gutters um you know so possibly that was a reference in the letter saying that the message was coming from the gutters this you know, system of uh, tunnels and stuff where all these dogs were being found slain nearby. But there was this abandoned pump house and it had been kind of converted into a ritual room with all kinds of satanic imagery and whatnot in it. And they would call it the Devil's Cave. And a group that was reportedly called the Children, um, which is one of the names that uh, is given to this kind of Son of Sam cult, um, this supposed offshoot of the Process Church by some accounts would be called the Children. And that is kind of, you know, interesting because there's a similarity between them and the Manson people. Um, but anyhow, yeah, I mean, there's reports of like 400 dogs being killed um, in this area, and it's less than a mile away from the Berkowitz and Carr home. And one of the things that people kind of use to try and pin this uh, cult as being part of the Process Church on the Final Judgment is the predominance of German shepherds that are found among these sacrifices. Um, a very high number of German shepherds. And there's uh, some reasons that people give as to why it's perhaps German shepherds that are being used, aside from it just being the process church or some sort of offshoot that's behind it. But, you know, I've heard some people explain that it could have to do with the purity of breed and that it'd be viewed as a more pure sacrifice. And, uh, Real quickly, we can just read a little bit from Peter Lavenda in Sinister Forces Book 3, where he discusses um, some of the dogs that had been found here um, in this area. So, Sinister Forces, here we go. For some reason, there may have been reports of sacrifices of large number of dogs, mostly German shepherds, throughout the United States in the past 30-odd years, but notably in areas where we discovered confirmed cult activity. This was as true in Berkowitz's Yonkers neighborhood as it was in Walden, New York, where a total of 85 skinned German shepherds and Dobermans were found in a single year between October 1976 and October 1977. The day after Berkowitz's arrest in Yonkers, the body of three slain German shepherds were found in an aqueduct behind his apartment. Two had been strangled with chains, the third had been shot in the head. Two days before his arrest, someone phoned an animal shelter using his, Berkowitz's name and address, inquiring about adopting a German shepherd that had been advertised in a local paper. A few hours later, someone else called from the same street in Yonkers, also inquiring about the dog. 
This caller said he was fixing some cars on Pine Street, an illusion that Terry believes actually refers to the Carr family who figure so prominently in this case. As it turned out, two men did visit the shelter, including one who resembled Berkowitz, but according to Berkowitz himself, it was not he, although he acknowledges that someone may have been impersonating him on the phone. Why? This was before his arrest and identification in the press as the son of Sam. Remember that serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer's first kill was the ritual slaughter of a dog behind his home in Ohio, which culminated in his placing the dog's skull atop a stake hammered into the earth. And around the time of the Sam killings, the author heard convincing rumors of the abuse and slaughter of dogs in a warehouse near Brooklyn Heights, within walking distance of the Warlock shop. Before Berkowitz was arrested and the connections with dogs was made, Terry connects the German Shepherd sacrifices with the process due to their fondness for the animals. Members of the process in those halcyon days of the 1960s were to be seen around San Francisco dressed in black and leading shepherds on the leash. The Fear issue of the Process magazine featured a photo spread of 20 German shepherds in a menacing pose. It doesn't automatically follow, however, that the process would sacrifice the animals. Another symbolic association should be mentioned is the fact that Hitler favored German shepherds above all other animals, that there might be a Nazi connection. So, there we go. We got the animal sacrifice out the way. And now we can go back to talking about human sacrifice, which for some reason is a little bit more easy to palate for most people, I think. So, we've got the we've got the dogs out the way, but really, did we say anything that you hadn't already gathered from the previous episode that there were dogs being sacrificed and that some people theorized that this is another connection of the process church to this case. So now, I guess what we should do is talk about the murder of Arliss Perry, because this and especially the Roy Raiden case are really what I want to talk about when it comes to all of this Son of Sam cult business in this episode. And I had already mentioned Arliss Perry, I believe, in possibly the first episode on the Process Church of the Final Judgment, where I list off a host of things that uh, happened and that people theorize might have some sort of connection to the Process Church. And one of those things was the death of Arliss Perry, the murder of Arliss Perry. So... She was murdered inside the Stanford Memorial Church in a pretty heinous and grisly fashion. She was stabbed behind her ear with an ice pick, and then her body would be defiled. Uh, large altar candles were taken. One was placed into her vagina, another between her breast. Pretty horrible stuff. Um, she was naked from the waist down, but the way that the killer put... Um, maneuvered her jeans folded her jeans on uh, across her legs resembled a diamond shape or perhaps if you were to ask me i would maybe say kind of like a masonic compass kind of a thing so that's not the only thing that makes people believe that this was some sort of ritual slaying but a, another thing of great importance is that the date that this happened was october 12th and for those of you who don't already know this, October 12th was Aleister Crowley's birthday. And uh, 
there's all kinds of other, you know, things about the uh, actual murder and the body itself that, you know, kind of point to an occult influence in the killing. But how does this all relate to Son of Sam, um, to the Son of Sam cult that Terry was going after? Well, Berkowitz would underline a portion of a book called The Anatomy of Witchcraft and send it to Terry Gardner and underline portions from this book about all sorts of things, stuff about Aleister Crowley's influence among L.A. circles, stuff about the Process Church of the Final Judgment, even some stuff about Charles Manson um, and an alleged Process Splinter group called the Chingons. Um, and he would leave a note, and this is kind of... a the thing that really got Terry and Terry Gardner's head to start spinning. He would leave a note in the margins of the book. And here is what it would say. Arliss Perry, hunted, stalked, and slain, followed to California, Stanford University. So as we had said, Arliss Perry was killed in the Stanford Memorial Church. She was a newlywed. I think she'd only been married for... A few months and yes it took place on the stanford cap um campus you know inside this church and it was uh this very haunting letter this note that berkowitz left in the book specifically that she had been stalked and slain and so berkowitz would write a letter to lee chase which berkowitz seemed to be writing all kinds of letters Big man of letters, David Berkowitz. But hey, I guess what else do you have to do when you're locked up for life aside from, uh, you know, right people? Which, I don't know, I feel like I just heard a story recently about how in New York that they're not going to allow inmates to contact people on the outside through letters and stuff like that. And they're going to really crack down on, uh, you know, monitoring anything that comes into the prison, which... You know, that kind of sucks. I mean, if you're someone in, who's in prison, I mean, that's probably one of the only things that you have to look forward to is correspondence with people through letters and the books that you get to read and stuff like that. So, but anyways, back to uh, Berkowitz writing this letter to Lee Chase about the Arliss Perry case. Um, and he would say, don't worry, because I didn't commit this crime. And this he wrote in November of 1979. And he would say, nor was I present when it was done. Back in October 74, I was busy and at work as a piss-poor paid security guard. I was here in New York, but, and I say but, in my travels with different people in this area, I met someone who was involved in her death and spoke freely of the slaying, bragging. He knew many details, and I knew that this guy, Manson number 2, doesn't bull. I know he killed often, him and his crew. This is what the new investigation was going to rest on. You as a natural detective can help at this time, but notice the strange coincidence here. Many months ago I inquired about Arliss Perry. If you'll note your newspaper clip, she hails from Bismarck. Bismarck is just south of Minot. Minot is the second focal point of the investigation next to Yonkers in Westchester County. This is why I mentioned to her to you as compared with the multitude of other murders of young women. women. Why her? Simply because I knew beforehand where she once lived. Also, I knew it was a cult thing. And so, 
Yeah, as we already stated, this got Terry Gardner and Mari Terry, who are still looking into the case of, you know, the son of Sam Colt all this time after David Berkowitz was brought up on, you know, the loan nut charges, so to speak, um, really got their heads spinning. And so then they basically called one another after um, the this that letter that I just read was a letter after the margin, um, the note in the margin of the book. But the note in the margin of the book, you know, they called each other and they're like, who the hell is Arliss Perry? Um, David Berkowitz, you know, was in New York on the East Coast and that happened on the West Coast. And news of that murder wasn't like a national story. It wasn't something that had made its way all the way to New York at that time. So, you know, it would have been curious at the time that he just wrote that margin in the book that he would even have any knowledge of that. And in that second letter that I read, that was something that they, you know, followed up with him on in their correspondence with his letters. And he had, you know, requested a newspaper clipping about it. But, um... You know, he still knew a lot of details that weren't explicit in this newspaper clipping or in any other newspaper publications at the time, which once again, it would have, you know, already been difficult for him to, you know, access. But Maury Terry sets out a multitude of things that would be incredibly difficult for Berkowitz to have been in the know about when it comes to the murder of Arliss Perry had he not had some sort of insider knowledge of this crime. And Berkowitz would request that newspaper clipping about the Perry case, but none of these facts would be included in the newspaper clipping that he would receive from Lee Chase. And some of those facts are that he knew that she was a teenage girl who was killed in a church in Stanford. He described her as tiny, skinny, and pretty descriptions that were not revealed in the papers. And he knew that she was a Christian, and he spelled her name correctly initially, but they misspelled Arliss Perry's name in the newspaper clipping, clipping that he was given. And uh, so he then changed his you know, spelling of it to match the um, incorrect newspaper spelling. But he also knew that Perry would often walk around the campus, um, which was not something that was published to the public. She was, yeah, always walking around uh, the, the Stanford campus, you know, kind of like a hobby of hers. And he knew that the case hadn't been solved, despite the fact that this newspaper clipping that he had received was written only days after the murder, like maybe two or three days after the murder. And so also the story of Arliss Perry, according to Terry, hadn't made its way to the East Coast from California, um, as I said earlier. Um, but the knowledge that he had goes even deeper than that. He knew of a small college named Mary College in the area, which he links to cult activity. And surprise, surprise, but there were reports existing that, you know, claim that there was a satanic cult operating in the area of Mary College, you know, and this is a college that, you know, most people haven't heard of and, you know, much less, I don't really think that there was any reporting that there was a satanic cult in the area. And um, he knew that she was stabbed behind the ear. Once again, just another detail that wasn't made explicit in the newspaper articles that existed at the time. And he knew that Perry was interested in cults despite being a devout Christian. And she wasn't interested in cults like in the way that uh, 
she wanted to join them but she was just curious about what people on the other side believed and there would even be which we'll go to into here in a second but there would even be stories about her trying to supposedly convert members of a satanic cult and perhaps that is what factored um, something that factored into her murder oh man i need to come in with some higher energy i went to church this morning after staying up too late last night came home took a nap and my brain has been soup ever since then and not even like warm good soup but like cold soup that's a little bit watery and that has been sitting out for too long but anyhow i am doing the metaphorical splashing water onto my face and slapping my cheeks while i scream at myself in the mirror to get it together because i have to deliver the people the truth but anyhow um, Mari Terry would go and interview over 40 people in Bismarck, North Dakota, which is where Mary College is. And uh, here's what Terry would say that he uncovered through these various interviews. That there was a cult from California that claimed they were not satanic and that they would settle in Bismarck and that members of this group would wear black clerical garbs with red collars. And this was in the year 1971, which is, uh, you know... Officially, uh, the process, I don't ever think, made out their way to North Dakota, um, you know, and set up a chapter there. But the black clerical garbs with, you know, the red collars and stuff, it's very reminiscent of the process church uh, get up that they would wear. And anyway, so this cult would show up in 1971 and they would remain there for at least a couple of years and that the group would move into a home across the street from Arliss Perry's grandmother's home. And Arliss Perry was a good Christian girl who liked to visit her grandmother, so she would often be there. And, you know, it's possible that this is where she first made contact with the group. However, you know, there's not anything to attest to whether this is how Arliss Perry you know, first made contact with the group. But two young women who were friends of Perry's would tell Terry that Arliss had an interest in the group, you know, once again, not wanting to join the group, but, you know, wanting to understand their beliefs and wanting to witness to them, you know, share the good word. And that she, uh, yeah, she just really wanted to get an understanding of this group. And one of her friends said that she was almost certain Perry had attended one of their meetings. And so the Santa Clara Sheriff's Department said that they would hear from Arliss's husband, Bruce Perry's parents. So um, Arliss, she married Bruce Perry, and Bruce Perry's parents would say that Arliss had once gone with a friend to one of the cult's meetups in an attempt to try and convert them to Christianity. And Terry would track down a former member of this cult um, that existed in Bismarck, North Dakota during the time. And he said, uh, this member of the group said that the cult was not satanic, but that their interests lied in astrology, tarot, and mysticism. But according to Terry, there was not just one cult, but yet another cult that was a more overtly satanic group operating in Bismarck at this time and that they would meet behind Mary College. And so something that I wondered when I was reading about this is whether there was two cults or whether it was possible that um, 
there's the you know kind of outer circle of people in the cult and then there's the inner circle of people in the cult and the inner circle of people in this cult that many people attested to existing in North Dakota at this time was into the more overtly satanic stuff you know but I mean a lot of the times uh, when there's a satanic cult afoot they don't lead with like hey come hang out with us and like you know let's sacrifice dogs and humans to uh satan you know uh that scares most people off you know typically there's kind of a uh, a process if you will into you know making your way into that level of a cult and it doesn't you know just start off with you know the first meetup that you attend you know you sacrifice a dog or you know, a child to Satan or any other host of demons. But anyhow, so according to Terry, there was more than one cult in the area at the time. And there was one that was more satanic overtly than the other. And so one of the nuns who taught at Mary College would say that um, the kids knew about this cult and that the cult was known to sacrifice dogs and that there was a cross that existed on the campus and that members of this cult would make their way up this hill and come to spit on the cross. And interestingly, in The Anatomy of Witchcraft, that book that Berkowitz had underlined different portions of um, and that he would send to Terry Gardner, one of the things that he underlined was that one must be ready to defile the image of Christ and spit on the cross. So perhaps he was making some sort of reference to that. Perhaps not, who's to say? But um, another person who attested to the existence of this cult in Bismarck was a couple who lived in a trailer home near Mary College where the cult would have their meetups, you know, close by. And they would say that three of their dogs had gone missing one day and that they were found mutilated and placed inside a circle of stones. So a magical circle. And uh, this, you know, once again, there's even more people um, and if you want to hear all the different accounts, you know, obviously just check out The Ultimate Evil. But um, a friend of Arliss Perry, who she knew through the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, would say that Perry was aware of the existence of this cult and that they would frequently, the two of them, discuss this cult at their FCA meetings. And so um, now we'll read just a little bit from Maury Terry um, discussing um about this group in Bismarck. So Terry writes, a further confirmation came from Mandan Police Sergeant Lamar Kruckenberg, who said, in early 74, an undercover cop was brought to an indoor cult meeting in Bismarck by one of his informants. He was looking for drug activity. There was no suggestion of murder at this time, which was about seven months before Arliss's death. The cop told me the people there were wearing masks behind there, and they were supposed to be some respected Bismarck people among them. The undercover officer left the force several years later, and we were unable to locate him. Closer to Arliss herself were two male acquaintances, both of whom were said to be occult adepts. A girlfriend of Arliss said one was um, said of one, he was always trying to invite us girls over to the basement for seances with black candles. Another friend of Arliss recalled, he carried a satanic Bible around with him. And so, you know, once again this more confirmation of some sort of uh, occult, possibly satanic group existing in Bismarck, North Dakota at the time. But, you know, the story doesn't end there. If you'll remember, there was mention of a Manson 2. 
and Manson too was uh, comes from a prison informant who Terry names Vinny, who was close to Berkowitz during his time in I want to say Attica State Prison, and so Vinny was close to Berkowitz, and he was the one who um, would kind of tell a little bit about uh, this Manson number two to Terry, which you know. Um, Berkowitz wouldn't talk about Manson II for a long period of time, presumably because he was scared to mention this Manson number two, because really, at any point, Berkowitz really doesn't have anything to say about people in the cult unless they are already dead. And so keep in mind that we're going to hear more from the prison informant Vinny um, as we go through the course of this podcast. But anyways, um, Vinny said, Manson, too, wasn't from North Dakota. He was from the L.A. area. That's where the Sam Colt had its headquarters. The North Dakota branch wanted Arliss dead, and they called California for help. Manson, too, went north to Stanford to arrange it. At least one, maybe two people from Dakota came out to help, but it was Manson, too's show to run. He was involved with the original Manson and the cult there in L.A. That's why Berkowitz used that name as a clue. And perhaps... Um, we will pin down at the end of this episode who exactly it was that Manson 2 was. At least talk a little bit about Mari Terry's prime suspect for being Manson 2. But anyways, he knew Charles Manson and was involved in that circle. He came from L.A. and he's used by this, you know, network of satanic cults, at least according to many, you know, for murder for hires and stuff like that. So... The cult in North Dakota wanted Arliss Perry dead for some reason, which perhaps it's because she saw something that she shouldn't have when she went to one of these meetings trying to convert people. Perhaps just the fact that she was trying to convert some of the people in this cult to Christianity was enough to have her, you know, put on some sort of hit list. But anyways, we will go on with the story. Yeah, so Vinny would also say that this Manson too was an occult superstar, um, which, I don't know, just a little bit of a funny term. When I think of a cult superstar, I tend to think of, like, I don't know, David Bowie or something. But maybe he would be a more apt person to pinpoint as an occult superstar. And uh, that he was, you know, brought in from the coast to assist in the Son of Sam killings. And he would also say that he was the trigger man in the killing of Christine Freund, um, one of the Son of Sam killings. And Vinny would also say that the reason Berkowitz was assisting in the Arliss Perry investigation um, was because he believed Manson too to be the one chiefly responsible in setting up Berkowitz as the fall guy in the Son of Sam killings. And Berkowitz would end up going on to discuss how Manson too bragged about the intimate details of the murder and said that he had shown Berkowitz a photo of Arliss Perry. And that's how Berkowitz knew what it was that she looked like. And when he was bragging, that's how he learned of some of the intimate details of the murder that there really wouldn't have been any other way for him to have knowledge of. So there are some of the oddities around the murder of Arliss Perry and how it potentially connects to the son of Sam Colt. But we should mention that recent DNA evidence has came to light that, you know, showed that it was 
um, at least one of the people involved in the murder was Stephen Crawford. And Mari Terry doesn't talk about him by name in the book, but he does mention um, the security card who he was the one who, you know, first discovered Arliss Perry there. And Mari Terry, you know, in some pretty good detail says, you know, how basically the murderer had to either be locked into the chapel with Arliss Perry because this happened at nighttime, you know, so like either that they had accidentally gotten locked into the chapel or that, you know, it could have possibly been the security guard, you know, he doesn't say it in such a brutal manner, but you know that he would have been one of the few people who would have had access to the chapel. And so, yeah, recent DNA uh, evidence came to light that showed that, you know, he was uh, one of the people who was involved with uh, the Arliss Perry murder, possibly, you know, the sole suspect. But we can't ask him any questions because as the sheriffs came knocking on his door, he would decide to blow his brains out. So... Um, you know, that's a pretty damning in and of itself, even just aside from the DNA evidence, you know, but I don't think that that negates the possibility that there was, you know, a cult aspect to this murder. And um, one thing that is interesting is that when they looked through Stephen Crawford's apartment, they would find a copy of The Ultimate Evil. So I guess that he wanted to see what it, it was that uh, Mari Terry had to say about the crime that he was either the sole perpetrator of or at least a part of it. And something that is, uh, you know, also worth mentioning is Vinny never says that Manson 2 was the, uh, you know, one to like actually kill Arliss Perry. His role could have been something, you know, like he engineered the killing or, you know, that there was multiple people who were a part of it. And something that is also interesting is that um, there's some kind of ambiguity about to whether, uh, you know, there was a variety of different things to, that they could have collected DNA from. And there was a certain stain that was not mentioned as to whether or not they tested it. So um, that would, you know, could possibly prove that there was other people involved with it, you know, and it's not hard to imagine how if, you know, there was a group of people who were directly involved with killing Arliss Perry, how Stephen Crawford would have been somebody who could have helped facilitate that, that you know, make that happen. So I don't know. I guess the jury is still out uh, to some extent about what it is that exactly happened when, you know, Arliss Perry was killed on Aleister Crowley's birthday in a church in a highly occult fashion. Um, but, you know, the jury is uh, still out, but we do know that Stephen Crawford had at least something to do with it, if not the sole perpetrator, one of the perpetrators. But we cannot ask him any questions anymore unless you want to do a very spooky Halloween seance and, <laughs> you know, maybe contact um, John and Michael Carr and Stephen Crawford and, you know, all the people who we've been talking about in these episodes who, who died. I wouldn't suggest that you do that, but if you do try to contact any of them in a seance, don't do it, but I would be interested to hear what it is that um, 
you are told, but it's probably a demon telling you. It's probably not even going to be Stephen Crawford or whoever. But anyhow, let's get back to talking about the Son of Sam cult. And so that was the Arliss Perry portion of the show. And now we are moving on to the Cotton Club murder, Roy Raiden. So according to this prison informant, Vinny, um, that there were, you know, people in the cult who were keeping tabs on Berkowitz while he was in prison and informing him of the cult's activities. And so Vinny would also say that um, Berkowitz, you know, said that there was a murder that the group was planning on committing on Halloween of 1981. So here is the letter from Vinny where we will hear about the murder to come on Halloween. Very spooky. What a perfect little thing to tie into the things observed Halloween spectacular. But anyways, here's the letter from Vinny. 
Um, and by the way, Santucci is the DA, the one who would replace Eugene Gold, I want to say his name was. Let me figure that out real quick. I don't want to uh, besmirch someone's name, but yeah. So he would replace Brooklyn DA Eugene Gold. And Eugene Gold was the one who was very insistent upon Berkowitz being a lone nut killer. And what would happen with Eugene Gold? What would his story end up looking like? Well, it would end up with him molesting a 10-year-old girl. But he would be replaced by Santucci. And Santucci would not only do what Eugene Gold did, um, he would not do what Eugene Gold did. Let me make that clear. I think I might have stumbled on my words. Santucci did not do heinous crimes to children, to my knowledge. Um, but he would also not, you know, close his ears and go la 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 when anybody mentioned something about there being a cult aspect or, you know, possibly more than one shooter in um, the, the Son of Sam case. Uh, but Eugene Gold was just not hearing it. He was, you know, we got Berkowitz, we got our man, and it's all over. And he didn't want to hear anything from Mari Terry or anybody else. But anyways... The letter, um, yeah, from Vinny, Santucci's the DA, so just keep that in mind. If Santucci cares, you may share all of this with him. I want you to give him all. Most of this means zip to me, but I can tell just reading it over that things are significant that I don't even realize myself. Time is critical. I'll take my chances. This is all true. It's true as I write it, as I see it. I'll try to be objective. The DA can take them for what they are worth. I want no deals, no publicity. These sickies have a fetish. Their favorite mode of murder is gunshots. They blow people's heads off. I have a family. I also have a head, and I want to keep it. Santucci does not have to play games with me. I fully expect that he will dissect me and my motives. It's a price I have to pay. I'm not exactly eligible for sainthood. All I can do is shut up if some lunatic starts turning this into publicity. My main concerns here are two things. That October 31st crime they planned and giving as much as I safely can on the group. Because November 30th is the next date, then New Year's. I am not a psychic, but already I've predicted three crimes. Drugs are involved. I feel the real key to exposing the group is through the drug and porn connections. Illegal weapons also, but not as good because that's sporadic. And they already have arsenals. But they need steady supplies of drugs for their own parties and to make money. And remember, those who head this may not believe this crap about Satan. They believe in how people can be led and used. Used in a very effective way. Sickeningly effective. They saw a good thing. I don't believe it was always this sophisticated, but they are expanding. And when you touch drugs and porn and call girl type operations and daughters of middle class people at school, things get hot. Because politicians may be involved. Or influential persons. So I'm scared to put it mildly. If I get wind, they blow someone's head off. October 31st, I may go catatonic. Tell Santucci this is real. Screw my inhibitions. Look, whoever heads this isn't from the city. At least he lives outside, I think Jersey or Long Island. At least he has some sort of big place, a regular Hugh Hefner place for parties, kinky sex. And people come from all over. Most people there are upper middle class. This group has strong holds in a lot of ways. 
Besides dedication is intimidation or guilt, but fear is the strongest. And Berkowitz's fear is real. He said to me that I said certain things he told me he'd just deny it. Not maliciously, but these people blow heads off. Blackmail exists also, or people won't talk because they are co-conspirators. Now listen, you know that coven book where they write their crimes? Can't you see I'm positive their dragon doesn't write his crimes? I never asked. But that book is insurance. The members figure it's a cult, but that book is insurance against rats. This is not a nickel and dime group of people out for kicks. Doctors and lawyers do not have to be so flamboyant. The group has got, some, has got to offer something of some substance, something very lucrative for someone. When was Donna Loria shot? Because DEL has a special significance. This I verified. They cover certain target crimes by unrelated other crimes. To cloud the picture. This is the type of group that can move into an unknown area and win converts fast. Sex, drugs, homosexuality. Many, many members educated and good looking. Fun parties, big mansions of sex. In their father's, Satan's, house are many mansions. Or palaces. Sick people. They go for retreats, too. I am not nuts. I will just say what I was told. I have things which lead me to suspect they may have filmed or videotaped many of these crimes. I have more than a suspicion. They have certain killings on film. That revelation alone will get me wasted. I'm destroying my notes. I must. Too dangerous. They not only ransacked Berkowitz's place to make him look mad, but he was supposed to get caught in a final act. No, I suspect different. He does also. He knows his days are numbered. That's why he came to me. He needs J.S., John Santucci, because, damn it, this insane stuff is true. Keep these things, coded notes that he compiled earlier, um, keep these things. I want to see my fortune story behind the brownstone in Brooklyn Heights, because I went to NYU at that time. That night, I met my date in Washington Square Park. Tom and Ronald and David were there. We had some Coke and a hamburger. We then saw a movie. Frankenstein meets Mickey Mouse and Rodin the Flying Monster. Narco and Ebb and Sissy Spacek and Rudy Kazuti were there. Roy Rogers and Dale Evans are my favorite stars. Next to James Camaro, who is white but dresses like an Indian. We were a regular jet set of the occult. Kennedy assassination taught that conspiracy theories are thought of as fairy tales. The, the insane act solo. On October 31st, look for a kinky or bizarre assassination. Males and females, their heads shot off, and they'll remove the evidence like when they ransacked Berkowitz's place, or leave misleading clues like in 77. Just keep this in mind if you stumble on something. A Halloween shooting. That will convince me. And as you guys can probably notice, there's a lot of uh, coded messaging and uh, what it was that he said in that lengthy letter that we just read in totality um you know and you know Vinny would continue to make correspondence with mari terry and reveal this information to him but you know let's think about some of the things that you know Vinny says about the cult that they're involved in drug trafficking and in pornography that they're making snuff films that there are influential persons who are involved, doctors, lawyers, possibly politicians, um, 
and that they are planning a shooting on Halloween and that it's going to be a male and a female or males and females um, and that they'll have their heads shot. And so, you know, due to Vinny's allegations of, you know, the upper class being involved with the cult, um, Terry would go and he would check the phone numbers that were found in Berkowitz's possession upon his arrest. And one of these numbers belonged to an exclusive country club in the Hamptons. And another was that of a private residence in East Hampton. There was another that belonged to a residence in West Babylon and another to a home in Shelter Island, which is kind of um, an exclusive island for for the wealthy in, in New York. And another to the summer residence of a Yonkers doctor. You know, there's doctors and lawyers involved with this. Um, and, you know, one can only wonder why postal clerk David Berkowitz has all of these private numbers of the upper crust um, in New York in his possession. There would also be the phone number of the Fort Harrison Hotel in Clearwater, Florida, which is, uh, you know, Clearwater is a Scientology hotspot. It might even be the headquarters, Um, but, you know, the Fort Harrison Hotel was, you know, a kind of Scientology thing. So very curious, especially when we think about the Michael Carr um, being involved with Scientology and all of that and so anyways you know that on some level confirms that you know Berkowitz has the numbers and the information of these influential and wealthy people but anyways you know back to Halloween murders some of the spookiest of all murders Um, (laughs) when Halloween came around uh, murder that Terry is convinced fulfilled the prediction of Vinny came to fruition and that was the murder of photographer Ronald Sisman in his apartment in Greenwich Village and you know Terry states that he is referred to both as Ronald and Sisick in the above letter Um, and Ronald Sisman would be shot execution style in the back of the head as well as Elizabeth Platman who would have her hands bound behind her back with a cord. And then the home was ransacked, you know, obviously, like, the place was turned upside down. It appeared as if somebody was looking for something. And Vinny would tell that Berkowitz, um, would tell Terry that Berkowitz had told him, man, what a mouthful. Vinny would tell Terry that Berkowitz had told him that he had been to a party at Sisman's Brownstone with Michael Carr. And Vinny would be vindicated to some extent again in his details because Sisman did indeed own a brownstone apartment and he would describe some of the things inside the apartment like the chandelier, um, which, you know, Vinny mentioned when relaying the story of Berkowitz. And in Vinny's telling of the story, he would also state that Sisman was dealing cocaine and he would also say that he either filmed or helped film the Moskowitz Violante Son of Sam shooting. And Vinny would state that Sisman was paranoid that he was about to go down for dealing and that he was considering talking to the authorities. And police would confirm that Sisman was anxious over what he believed to be an impending arrest. And Sisman was a very heavy user of cocaine and was by some accounts said to be involved with dealing cocaine as well. So these are some aspects of, you know, uh, Vinny's story that are being corroborated, um, you know, 
but Vinny would also state that he may have been planning to use the tape of the Moskowitz Violante shooting to help his case with the authorities in the event that he was arrested. Um, so, you know, that would be a possible motive for the cult killing cis men. You know, not only is just some sort of Halloween ritual, but if he were planning to do something with the Moskowitz Violante shooting tape, assuming that it exists, that would not be very good for the cult. And it's interesting to note also that Elizabeth Platman, the woman who was murdered alongside Sisman, was an out-of-state college student, which is interesting, you know, given that Vinny alleges that there's a uh, call girl ring of college-aged women being used by the cult. And um, another prison informant would come forward who Terry identifies as Danny, and he would confirm the snuff film and the drug-dealing angle of Vinny's story as well. And there is another thing of great interest to our investigation, and it is that Sisman would be accused by the actress Melanie Haller in May of 1980 of attempting to force her to take drugs. Haller would be um, introduced to film producer Roy Radin by none other than Ronald Sisman. And, uh, Melanie Haller, she was in Welcome Back, Cotter. She would pose in Playboy at one point. And so she's introduced to Roy Radin by Ronald Sisman. And Sisman, you know, basically said that this guy is a shaker and producer with a lot of sway. You know, you should meet up with this Roy Radin guy, um, you know, and he can, you know, help your career out. And so this meeting would take place at Roy Radin's extravagant Southampton home. Um, saw some pictures of it, and I mean, it's just ludicrous. I want to say that it's like 70 rooms and stuff. I mean, it's, it's giant. Um, and the following day, after she would attend this party at the Southampton home, she would be found on a commuter train, and she was unconscious and bloodied. And she would then go on to tell of how she was beaten and raped at a party at Roy Radin's, replete with skimpy Nazi outfits and whippings and all kinds of crazy stuff. And how, you know, there were, um, I want to say like two women and two men who helped to beat her and then Roy Radin raped her and that the whole thing was filmed. So pretty horrific stuff. And, you know... We have a cisman who was there who introduced her into this dark milieu. And according to Mari Terry, uh, Roy Radin is the man mentioned in the letter as Roy Rogers and Rodin the Flying Monster. You know, and uh, Roy Radin would also meet a violent hit. And, and this, you know, um, Perhaps it's just yet another life that would be snuffed out after falling into the clutches of the Sun and Sam cult. So let's look into it and see if indeed... Oh man, now I'm even getting confused with these coded words. Let's see if, you know, Raiden is the Roy Rogers and the Rodin the Flying Monster. 
that um, is being talked about and discuss some of his connections and the Cotton Club murder, as it is often called. So we'll look, you know, into who exactly Roy Raiden is and some of the factors that played into his death. So who was Roy Raiden? Well, Roy Raiden was born on November 13th of 1949 to a concert and event organizer named Alexander Raiden, and his mother was a former stripper. But he would thankfully choose to follow in his father's footsteps because it would have been even kind of worse if he had became a stripper because he was a ghoulish looking guy and I don't think he would have been everybody's favorite Chip and Dale dancer. And he would inherit a lot of his father's clients and a lot of these were old vaudeville performers and oldies musicians and he would have them tour across America and a lot of the times he would schedule like police benefits and stuff like that and he would actually get into trouble because he was taking such a large profit from these you know so-called benefit shows that he would do and uh with the wealth that he accrued um would also come a lifestyle of indulgence a lot of sex a lot of drugs specifically a ton of cocaine he you know probably did his own weight in cocaine very frequently and he was a big dude um so we will read from Peter Lavenda in Sinister Forces Book 3, and he says, In the Roy Raiden case, sex and drugs combine in the usual ways, but with the addition of occult practices on the one hand and videotape, top, videotape technology on the other, to show how far we worship the image, merely participating in extreme sexual activity was not enough anymore for people of Raiden's circle. It became necessary to record the images on tape so that the events could be relived or, and this is more likely, could be examined and studied from a different perspective, a different angle than the lenses of our own eyes that the lenses of our own eyes permit us, like seeing yourself talk on television for the first time. To watch yourself having sex with another on tape is to sink well into your subconscious. It is a point of view normally reserved for your sexual partner. By breaking that parameter, you have changed the dynamic of the act completely. While you have performed as a sexual being until that time, from the inside out, you are now a sexual image, from the outside in. You have reversed polarity. And if this is done without the proper safeguards, you can spin out of control. It is no wonder, then, that all the high-profile cult scandals of the last 30 years have involved videotaped sex acts, from the much-rumored sex tapes of Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski, to the missing videotapes of the Manson family, to the Sisman videotapes of the Sun and Sam killings, and the Roy Raiden videotapes. Sex and murder have become images, have become magical glyphs and sigils in a modern-day grimoire, and as usual, there is always an organization in place to take control of these images images, a cult, a gang, a government. In Raiden's case, it was all three. So yeah, Raiden was involved in some, what many would call debaucherous stuff to, you know, say the least. And so that is to introduce Roy Raiden. But I also want to introduce Bob Evans or Robert Evans because when we were talking about the Roy Raiden murder case, uh, you know, the Cotton Club murders, we must um, mention, you know, Hollywood producer and studio executive, the producer of The Godfather and Chinatown, and a large part of uh, Rosemary's Baby, um, you know. 
Bob Evans, and he would marry the one-time Miss America Phyllis George, as well as the actress Allie McGraw, who was a friend of Anita Pallenberg, who would be introduced to Black Magic by Kenneth Anger. If you want to listen to uh, a little tidbit about Kenneth Anger and um, him going to the Abbey of Thelema with uh, Alfred Kinsey, check out my very first episode of Things Observed. And, you know, so uh, Allie McGraw, she was friends of Pallenberg, who was into black magic. And Pallenberg would also, now I'm just kind of going on a little tangent, but it's interesting. She would be romantically involved with both Keith Richards and Brian Jones of uh, the Rolling Stones. And in July of 1979, a 17-year-old boy would be found um, dead of a self-inflicted gunshot wound in her bed. And he had used Keith Richards' gun. So, uh, certainly very interesting. So, I mean, that just shows you kind of, uh, the, the circle that, you know, uh, Allie McGraw ran in and she was the one-time wife of Bob Evans and Bob Evans's other wife, uh, you know, the former Miss America, Phyllis George, she would be married to, for a time to Kentucky governor, John Y. Brown, and John Y. Brown would be involved in a scandal involving Colombian drug lords and a paramilitary cult called the Company. But and and that even has some you know further connections to people in um, kind of the Cotton Club milieu, if you if you will. But anyways, just kind of shows you some of the company that this legendary Hollywood producer Robert Evans kept. But anyways, back to Evans, um, we'll have Lavinda further elucidate some of the strange connections that he had. More importantly, Evans will meet, and some say eventually propose, to one Elaine Lonnie Jacobs, the wife of several drug runners in her time, with a trail that leads directly back to a crazed narco-traficante worshipper of John Lennon and neo-Nazi Carlos Leder, currently a guest of the U.S. federal prison system. The number of associations that swirl around Robert Evans is astonishing. The fact that he was arrested and convicted once for cocaine possession is only the tip of a very old and very cold iceberg. He was a suspect in a homicide, and it was this homicide that brought the son of Sam Colt to the surface. So anyways, you know, we have, um, you know, introducing the characters that are coming to play in this whole Cotton Club murder. And I know it's a lot. I know it's a lot of people who were introducing. So hopefully I'm doing a good job of explaining everything. And uh, everybody's, you know, following. So we have Roy Radin, the lecherous Hollywood producer. Who has this, you know, giant home in the Hamptons. 70 uh, different rooms in the home. And we have Bob Evans, the producer of, you know, Hollywood classics like The Godfather, and who would also be involved with the production of Rosemary's Baby, which ties him into, uh, you know, Roman Polanski, um, you know, and there's just yet another kind of like, however many degrees of Kevin Bacon away from, you know, the, the, the Manson family, um, you know, which, you know, we'll talk about if there's any possible, you know, relation to that in the Son of Sam murders in just a minute. And we already introduced the uh, 
man who we haven't identified yet, but who goes by the name Manson too, who supposedly traveled in those circles. But anyways, we've already talked a little bit about Roy Radin and Ronald Sisman and the whole Melanie Holler incident. And, you know, we also have Evans, who was arrested that same year for possessing five ounces of cocaine. And so what brings these two gentlemen together? Well, they would be brought together by a woman who was sitting on a fortune made by that good old Bolivian marching powder. And that is Karen Delane Jacobs. And uh, she was popular with the Cuban and Colombian narco scene. She was sleeping around with a number of large-time drug dealers and traffickers. And she would often peddle drugs behind the backs of, uh, you know, her narco boyfriends. And she would eventually start running massive loads of cocaine from Miami to Los Angeles herself. So she is a fixture and the uh, Cuban and Colombian cocaine scene, and is, uh, you know, uh, sleeping around with some pretty gnarly and powerful dudes, and she's starting to make um, a healthy amount of money from her own cocaine dealings, and one of these men um, was Carlos Redder Rivas, uh, hopefully I'm pronouncing that right, but he's the one who Lavenda mentions being the John Lennon and Hitler-loving nationalist, and uh, yeah, just all very interesting. I can't remember the name of the party, but he would actually try to start his own political party in uh, South America, um, so yeah, just a very interesting host of characters. But anyways, we will once, ago to, once again go to Lavinda and uh, just have him, you know, kind of summarize how uh, Laney and Bob Evans and all of this come into the picture. And we will eventually get to the Cotton Club film, which many people theorize uh, is what would be responsible for Roy Radin uh, getting whacked. How Laney met Bob Evans was pure serendipity. She had rented a limousine in L.A. from a company in which Evans was a part owner, Ascot Limousine, and the chauffeur heard her talking about investing some money in a movie project. The chauffeur knew that Evans was looking for backers for new projects of his own and offered to put Laney Jacobs in touch. He was as good as his word, and soon Evans was sending flowers to Laney and taking her out on the town, introducing her to his Hollywood world. The fact that they had cocaine in common didn't hurt the relationship, although Evans would always incredibly claim that he did not know that Laney Jacobs was a dealer or that money she was considering investing in his various projects was drug money. Friends and acquaintances, of course, insist otherwise. Evans was at his wit's end at the time, trying to jumpstart his stalled career, when into the midst of his purgatory wandered Jacobs, a brash player in a tight red gown and a bulging purse who single-handedly gave the term powdering one's nose a whole new meaning. It was a marriage made in some perverse kind of heaven, where the angels play maracas instead of harps, and the clouds have a street value of a hundred bucks a gram. You know, so uh, we have, you know, Laney Jacobs walking into the picture. Bob Evans, his career has kind of stalled for a little bit. And Laney Jacobs is looking to sink some of her cocaine money into uh, the movie business. And it would be Roy Radin who was trying to get his project of uh, the Cotton Club. I shouldn't say his project because it's not like he wrote it or anything like that. But he was trying to get, you know the whole cotton club thing off the ground and uh 
So, you know, this is how we have this kind of host of characters come into the scene. And for a time, if this is just an interesting aside, um, the international arms dealer Adnan Khashoggi was actually one of the financial backers of the film uh, The Cotton Club for a time. And it was with this money that Mario Puzo, who was the author who wrote the novel The Godfather, um, would write the initial script for The Cotton Club. But, you know, yeah, you heard right. International arms dealer Adnan Khashoggi uh, the one who sold his yacht to Robert Maxwell, um, the, which Robert Maxwell would go on to name Ghislaine after Ghislaine Maxwell. You know, just interesting Jeffrey Epstein fact. You got to work in those Jeffrey Epstein facts every time you have the opportunity. But yeah, international arms dealer Adnan Khashoggi is someone who uh, could easily do um, a whole episode on just him. But, you know, Raiden and Jacobs would meet, and it would be then that Jacobs said that she should bring her friend Robert Evans to work on Raiden's project, The Cotton Club. And so now we have the whole cast of characters, um, you know, in the picture. And the script would go through several revisions, including a rewrite by Francis Ford Coppola, you know, the, the Godfather guy, Apocalypse Now, all that. And... Uh, they would also receive um, another round of funding from the Dumani brothers who were Las Vegas casino owners and they would be brought in as financiers. And so Lavenda writes, Raiden was elated. He was finally in the big leagues. Further, Evans was a known cokehead and even the Dumani brothers were fed up with his habit. Raiden had experience with cokeheads and felt he could control Evans to a certain degree. He could coast on Evans' legendary reputation in the movie business, even though that legend was largely tarnished, and create a new reputation for himself. And everything would have been fine had it not been for Tally Rogers. Rogers was Laney's drug courier and the man who had installed the safe in her house. After an argument about the amount he was to be paid for a Miami-Los Angeles round trip, he rifled her safe and her stash and made off with a million dollars worth of cocaine and cash and then promptly disappeared. And so Jacobs didn't believe that it was just Rogers who had something to do with it, but she believed that Raiden had something to do with the heist. And she would enlist bodyguards Bill Mincer and Alex Marti, who formerly worked as guards for Larry Flint, you know, the... Um, the the hustler guy the you know uh you know next to hugh hefner like you know one of the uh kingpins of the pornography industry at the time um you know so she would get you know some people who worked as bodyguards uh, specifically bill mincer and alex marty to become bodyguards for her because she was you know obviously worried um about, you know, being protected from Rogers and possibly the Colombian cartel. And, uh, you know, a lot of cocaine going missing and a lot of money going missing and being high on cocaine. Um, it's not the best thing for anxiety and paranoia. So she gets uh, these these guys. And Alex Marti's actually rumored to have been an Argentine Death Squad member. And he was apparently a another Nazi-loving guy. He would had a picture of Hitler in his home and was a fan of the Fuhrer. And he really enjoyed the Nazi... Uh, means of you know killing people with a bullet to the back of the head he had a fascination with that so um 
interesting guy to to say the least and then you know there's bill mincer and this is where we come to manson number two bill mincer is maury terry um maury terry's choice of the uh guy who is in his mind manson number two and we'll get into all of that in just a little bit but raiden would negotiate you know more financing from the government of puerto rico um which is kind of interesting um you know so he needs more funding yet again and you know he keeps having these financiers back out um you know and having tons of problems with getting this movie made and so he negotiates this deal with the government of puerto rico and you know it's kind of interesting i I believe the idea was that puerto rico would help develop a studio out in hollywood and that this would be like a continual deal and that they could continue to you know make movies and and stuff through this studio that would be set up and you know so Raiden's pretty proud of himself for, you know, finally securing um, enough money to, you know, hopefully get this, pic- this picture made, the Cotton Club movie made. And Jacobs would, you know, start betting Evans, supposedly, and make her way back into the pictures. And this is after she had, you know, kind of been um, sidelined on the project and Evans would tell Raiden that he wanted him to give Jacobs half of his 45% share in the movie, which uh, this is when things, you know, truly went to hell in a handbasket, so to speak, because Raiden had the lion's share of, you know, with his 45%, and he did not want to give half of that to Jacobs. And uh, it would also, you know, make it to where he no longer had, like, the controlling... um, have you know as much control over the project as he had and so things go go to even more shit after this you know lanny jacobs um thinks raiden is you know has something to do with the cocaine and money heist raiden doesn't want to let her in on you know his 45 percent share doesn't want to give half of that away and so we have some trouble brewing and then Friday, May 13th comes around, and man, just the dates in this episode are all crazy. It's, you know, Halloween murders, Friday the 13th murders, <laughs> um, uh, but on Friday the 13th, Jacobs would pick up Roy Raiden in a limousine, and Raiden was under the impression that they would go grab some dinner in Los Angeles, talk things over, and Raiden was confident that he could kind of soothe things over and, you know, uh, fix the issues that were, were going on. And so Raiden gets into the limousine and he would not be seen again until June 10th, 1983, when a beekeeper would find his remains off an extremely remote road in a re- that would find his body in a ravine that's, you know, off this extremely remote road in Gorman, California. And I want to say that Roy Raiden was like over 300 pounds. And I heard that when his body was found that he was like, you know, 65 pounds or something because he had been left outside so long and there was, you know, so much decomposition in in the hot sun. Um, And so we will once again read from Lavenda because he does a pretty good job of summarizing some of Maury Terry's conclusions. And we will, you know, 
then get into you know whether or not Bill Mincer was Manson number two and you know how exactly this murder of a Hollywood film producer and you know guy who puts old vaudeville acts on the road relates to the son of sam killings even more than we already have so lavenda says it is at this point in the story that we must rejoin our previous protagonist who had been searching zealously for evidence of just such a crime before it was ever reported Mari terry acting on the basis of information obtained from an informer Vinny, who had known david berkowitz in prison was looking at roy radin as the possible east coast connection for the son of sam cult why there was more to ocean castle which that's Roy Radin's mansion, than the Melanie Holler incident. It seems that police had been called out to the castle several times in the past, acting on complaints of sexual assault. There was a strong rumor that many of the parties and other activities there had been videotaped, and that photographer Ronald Sisman was more deeply involved with Radin and with cult activity than others had suspected. Vinny had actually named Raiden, knowing him only as Rodin and Rodin the Flying Monster, as well as Sisman and others involved in the case. Raiden was said to be involved with Dale Evans, another code name, and in this case, Roy Raiden was referred to as Roy Rogers. Dale Evans, then, was possibly Bob Evans, but some of this information went back long before Evans and Raiden were thought to have met, implying a deeper involvement between the two men, something that Evans has always denied. In fact, Evans would only admit that Raiden was merely an acquaintance and not a business partner, partner a statement that was patently untrue, as signed copies of their movie agreement exist to disprove this allegation beyond any doubt. To be sure, Roy Rogers could also have been a reference to Tally Rogers, who, as Laney Jacobs' drug courier, was driving between Miami and Los Angeles twice a month and could conceivably have been more than simply a drug courier and used to transport information between the Los Angeles branch of the Sam Colt and the East Coast. When the investigators finally caught up with Tally Rogers, he was serving time in Louisiana prison system for child molestation, having sexually abused two young sons of his then-current girlfriend. Vinny insisted that Raiden had close connections to Los Angeles, and the son of Sam Colt supposed to be headquartered there. Terry's information included reports of satanic activity at Osen Castle, along with all the drugs and polymorphous sexuality. David Berkowitz himself was known to have visited Ocean Castle at least once, which was explosive information as it was. But then Berkowitz also had been seen in North Dakota, the other Sam Colt site. Terry tried connecting all the dots, but he did not have identities for some of the players, and in other cases he was dealing with ongoing police investigations and could not reveal more specific information or possibly such information was not available to him. And so when Mari Terry was talking to the prison informant Vinny, Vinny would say to Terry uh, to look at the scene of the crime closely because Mari Terry was going to go out to California and he was going to investigate the scene himself and Vinny tells him to pay close attention to the area around where the murder happened because the cult would leave some sort of calling card basically some sort of sign there of what happened and so Mari Terry goes out there with Ted Gunderson of all people and uh, Ted Gunderson was a former FBI 
guy and uh i i think he's kind of sus he talks a lot about satanic ritual abuse and uh you know some stuff that's definitely of interest to people in our conspiracy circle you know um i think that he you know had something to do with you know uh you know talking about like all all the 80s and 90s uh yeah, just SRA type stuff, you know, like Franklin scandal, Presidio base scandal type stuff and talking about the occult and stuff. But I don't know. I don't know anything about this with certainty, but he just strikes me as a little bit sus, but that's neither here nor there. He doesn't really factor that large into um, the story here. But he would go out, to, uh, Terry would go out to the scene of the crime with Ted Gunderson, you know, after the body had been removed and the police did their initial investigation. And Terry would find a Bible beneath a bush, and the Bible was ripped in half to where what was showing was Isaiah 22. And Isaiah 22 includes the verse. And behold, joy and gladness, slaying oxen and killing sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we shall die. And so, uh, Mari Terry took this as, you know, some, uh, a type of evidence that, you know, the cult really was responsible behind it. And yet, this is just, you know, another thing that kind of vindicates some of what Vinny is saying. You know, I mean, it's hard to imagine that within 20 feet of where the body was, that, you know, a, a Bible just happened to be left by, you know, someone else prior to the murder or whatever. You know, you would think that it was almost most definitely the cult who left it behind. But given the official story, it, you know, to return, you know, back to the Raiden murder, um, it isn't really clear why Raiden would have been murdered necessarily. Because, I mean, if it was the money and the drugs that Jacobs believes he took... I mean, killing him would not have gotten the money back. And if it had something to do with Robert Evans wanting Jacobs to have a share of the movie, it could have came out of his own end. But, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. It, it is also possible. I mean, people have been killed over much less than, you know, uh, getting burnt on, you know, drugs and money or getting screwed out of what they believe is their rightful percentage on, you know, a big Hollywood movie. So I'm not saying that it's impossible, but, you know, more importantly is just some of the, you know, uh, things that we've talked about that are kind of inconsistencies in the story already. But uh, Steve Wick, um, he would write, you know, one of the only books that I know of that covers the Cotton Club murder, and he's not a, you know, red pill to the Maury Terry stuff by any stretch of the imagination, but he does mention in his book that Alex Marti, um, you know, the supposed former Argentine death squad guy who uh, was one of the bodyguards who would end up, you know, being involved with this murder because, you know, the murder was done by um, Alex Marti and Bill Mincer at the request of Jacobs. At least, you know, that's the official story. But Alex Marti would give Roy Raiden the name of Rodin, um, according to Steve Wick in his book on the Cotton Club murder, which, you know, seems to confirm, uh, you know, just... The, the name 
that he was, you know, going by road and could have been known by the son of Sam Colt. And, you know, it seems to confirm that either Mincer and or Marty were, you know, members of the cult or were possibly contracted by the cult for the killings. And now I'll once again read from Peter Lavenda, um, just because, you know, uh, even though we're critical of Lavenda sometimes, you know, we can't seem to go an episode on things observed without talking about Peter Lavenda or reading from the, the Sinister Forces trilogy. Um, they, they are good books, all criticism of Lavenda aside, but anyhow, uh, Lavenda notes um, about this whole case, and there's kind of an incredible admission inside of it, but uh, that Vinny and Danny, Terry's prison's informants, would have known details about Raiden, Evans, Ocean Castle, Sisman, Berkowitz, drugs, videotaped sexual acts, and much else besides clearly implies but does not prove that there were right in other areas as well, including the satanic cult angle. The author himself can attest that Roy Raiden had expressed interest in filming occult rituals being performed in Manhattan by the magicians and other self-styled sorcerers hanging out at the Magical Child bookstore on 19th Street, identified by Terry, although not by name, as an important locus for the Sam cult. And an address book in Berkowitz's possession did show an entry for Ocean Castle. Sisman did introduce Melanie Holler to Roy Raiden, and Sisman and his girlfriend were murdered on Halloween. Police, aware of the relationship between the two men, questioned Raiden about the murder, but he claimed ignorance. Sisman was also rumored to have in his possession the all-important Stacey Moskowitz murder videotape, if indeed such ever existed. Um, so we already covered a lot of that stuff, but, you know, Lavinda kind of, you know, summarizes some of the things that seem to kind of vindicate Vinny's story, you know, which a lot of the times information that comes with from prison informants is, you know, often considered to not be that helpful. A lot of times, a lot of the times people in prison will just kind of, you know, say whatever to, uh, you know, maybe help their case in some sort of way. But it really seems like with Vinny, like he knew a little something about the case and like the information that he was relaying saying that he got it from Berkowitz was the real deal but also what I thought is very interesting is you know we know that Lavinda hung around the magical child bookstore in New York and that he was you know a fixture back in the day in the occult scene and that you know we, we already talked about him in the second part of the Tom DeLong episode and a lot of you guys are also programmed to chillers as well. So a lot of you guys will already know about some of the susness surrounding Peter Lavenda. But just yet again, there's kind of like a, another thing that he happened to uh, be in, not involved with, but, you know, just like in circles where he would even know that, you know, Roy Radin's wanted to film, you know, magical practices, you know, and, you know, trying to get people from the Magical Child bookstore to, you know, let him film their magical practices but also it not only you know shows that roy raiden was involved with all this debauched sex stuff and you know criminal elements and stuff like that but it also shows that he had an interest in the occult so interesting admission by lavinda that definitely um supports the maury terry uh hypothesis so now let's delve into bill mincer 
Maury Terry's choice for Manson number two and see if there's possibly any evidence to suggest that he was indeed the Manson two referred to in the letter from Vinny that we read um, more towards the beginning of the show. So according to some of Terry's sources in the LAPD and in the criminal underworld and also some of his sources in federal agency, Bill Mincer was a hitman. And not only was he a hitman, but he supposedly knew Abigail Folger and possibly even Charles Manson. And something that's very interesting to note is, you know, for those of you guys who don't know, Abigail Folger was killed, you know, during the Tate murders. Um, she was one of the people who was living inside the Polanski household and she would be killed by the Manson family. And, um, you know... So we in her last name's Folger, yes, she is the coffee heiress of, you know, Folger's coffee or whatever. And she was also the girlfriend of Wojciech Verkowski, and um both would be killed in the Polanski home during the Sharon Tate murders. Um but according to one of Terry's anonymous witnesses, who was a federal agent who went undercover in the anti-war scene, he saw Manson and Folger attending this like dinner party um sounds like almost like some sort of like gala party or something like that for some sort of charitable thing but he would say that he saw manson and abigail folger together which even that in and of itself changes the whole narrative of the manson murders and according to Vinny, manson too would be someone who was connected to the manson family you know through abigail folger but he was also um, running around in the Mama Cass Elliot Laurel Canyon scene, which also has connections to the Manson family. So Folger had funded what was called the Himalayan Society, which kind of like this new age group, which Charles Manson was rumored to have belonged to. And she also funded the Straight Theater. And something interesting about the Straight Theater um, that is what brought together Kenneth Anger and Bobby Boos Allil. So yet another occult and Manson family connection. Um, so just, yeah. And Mincer was also a friend of Mama Cass Elliot, who was close with the mamas and the papas. And she was, you know, like I said just a second ago, a fixture in the Laurel Canyon scene. And Mama Cass and Mincer also knew Billy Doyle. Now, if uh, you guys have read Chaos or The Family by Ed Sanders, you will know that Billy Doyle was um, the guy who was, you know, involved with some of the drug stuff and whatnot that was going on in that scene. And there would be a party at the Polanski household where Billy Doyle would, you know, supposedly be whipped on camera. And I think that there's also by some accounts that he was possibly sodomized or raped and that this was filmed at the Polanski household. So um, just another interesting connection that Mincer has into the whole, you know, Manson family uh, scene. And as you guys remember, Vinny said that Manson number two would be you know known to the whole manson family scene and that he was you know maybe even a you know acquaintance knew manson himself and like you know kind of insinuates that he had something to do with all of that stuff going on and so it's very interesting that mincer would have those connections 
And another thing is we not only know that Mincer was in, you know, the Mama Cass, Elliot, uh, you know, Abigail Folger, Billy Doyle, you know, all these people, you know, connected to the, uh, you know, Manson family or Polanski, just that whole orbit of people in that Laurel Canyon type area. But Mincer also knew some people in the occult scene, according to Terry. Um, Mari Terry would talk to an investigator named Judy Hansen, who was working on a separate case um, to any of the stuff that we've been talking about. But she would take down Mincer's license plate number after he visited the home of a man who was known to be a member of a satanic coven a number of times. And, uh, you know, so, yeah, we, we have all kinds of stuff about uh, Mincer that, you know, could suggest that he is possibly the Manson number two who is talked about. But Lavenda in Sinister Forces Book 3, um, he does seem to buy into, on some level, the Son of Sam cult hypothesis, but he does give us a reason for pause on the matter of Mincer. So I will read this one last quote from him real quick, um, just, you know, in the interest of being fair and, you know, really trying to get to the truth. But anyways, Lavenda says, while Mincer had a criminal record and had been involved in questionable and illegal activities for a while, what does not ring true about Mincer being the much vaunted Manson too is that for a hitman he evidently had a rather weak stomach. On each occasion where we know Mincer was present at or committed a murder, he had to drink himself into the role. That is, he had to be pretty drunk before he could carry out the killings, whereas his associates, men like Argentine assassin Alex Marti, carried out the missions with glee and needed no Dutch courage to get them in the mood. In the case of Roy Radin, it is agreed that Mincer did not fire the shot that killed the producer. It was Marty who fired some 27 rounds into Radin's skull. Mincer only delivered the 28th and final shot, a kind of coup de grace, and that only after he had been drinking. While he may have been willing to hit while he may have been a willing hitman, at least theoretically, it would take him some time to work up the nerve. This does not sound like a Manson too, but it is possible I am reading too much into the sobriquet for all. After all, Manson himself was never convicted of actually committing a murder, but only of having ordered them to be carried out. If the Manson killings were murders for hire, Manson acting on the instructions from another source, then the Mincer killings were certainly hired hits. The murder of Roy Radin was carried out on Lanny Jacobs' instructions. Another murder, that of a transvestite in Los Angeles who was allegedly blackmailing a wealthy family, was also a murder for hire, a contract fulfilled by Mincer. And I'm not exactly sure where Lavenda is getting the fact that he would have to drink himself into the role, but I could do a whole lot more research on the Cotton Club murders. I mean, this is just like really only scratching the surface of it and really only talking about the case. Um, a little bit to summarize for people who don't know what it is that we're talking about, um, what the, you know, kind of basics of the story is, and then how this potentially relates into the Son of Sam killings. But, um, yeah, I mean... We could just keep going on and on with this subject. You know, this isn't even mentioning the paramilitary drug cult called The Company um, that, you know, has some links to the Cotton Club host of characters um, that we real briefly mentioned, you know, and I don't know, um, drugs being rolled by something called The Company. 
can only make one think of the CIA, at least in my mind. That's what it makes me think of. Um, and, you know, there's all kinds of other things that Vinny's testimonies led to Terry figuring out, like the fact that, um, you know, Vinny was talking about, you know, some areas that uh, the, the cult was doing their satanic ceremonies and, and what have you. And this led Terry to figure out that a satanic cult was using a former Warburg Rothschild mansion that had been burned down as their satanic church. Um, or, you know, that Berkowitz attended a party where he met Roy Cohn or Jesse Turner, the guy who claimed to be a hitman for the Process Church, um, who was a convicted bank robber, that he said that he was paid by Robert Maplethorpe to retrieve snuff films from the House of Sisman, um, one of the films being the Moskowitz murder tape. You know, Robert Maplethorpe, the uh, kind of bizarre photographer, artist guy. Um, and, you know, the, yeah, there's just so many things that um, we could go into. One thing that I do want to mention before... Um, we finish and conclude this episode is that uh last episode we talked about fred cowan who is the neo-nazi who david berkowitz named as a another son um you know another son of sam um something that i forgot to mention last episode but i do think it's interesting and worth mentioning is that fred cowan was a member of the national states right group which was connected to the Sanders family who play into the KKK connection in the Atlanta child murders. So the Sanders family was like, you know, these, you know, uh, Nazis or white nationalists or, you know, whatever you want to call them, who were big into the KKK. They were Klansmen. And, you know, they started this group, the National States Rights Group. And there's all kinds of things that uh, are very interested in relation to their connection to the Atlanta child murders. Um, so very interesting uh, stuff and it's kind of interesting how there's this convergence that we see so often between you know both occult stuff and Nazi stuff and fascism and it seems like there's a lot of interplay between the two to say the very least and um, so yeah I just wanted to mention that about the whole Fred Cowan thing and now just a little bit in summary I will uh, talk for just a second about what it is that I think, uh, you know, who it is that is behind the Son of Sam murders. And, you know, if this has anything to do with the Process Church, you know, because we talked about the Process Church in two different episodes. We took a real close look at Timothy Wiley's book, um, Love, Sex, Fear, and Death, and you know, it's so often rumored that the Process Church was uh, who were involved in the Son of Sam killings. Here's what I will say. Um, when you do a close reading of The Ultimate Evil, there's not really any point at which Mari Terry says that it was definitively the Process Church of the Final Judgment, rather that he theorizes that it was some violent offshoot of the Process Church. So somebody who took the Process Church's theology seriously, who was interested in the ideals that they were espousing, but that there were, you know, splinter groups of the Process Church. And he even, you know, mentions some of these splinter groups that, you know, through various sources, you know, whether it be people who claim to be members of these splinter groups or um, investigators who came into, you know, some sort of evidence of these groups existing, you know, there's, you know, like the 4P um, 
movement, you know, which uh, that's a reference to the process insignia, which kind of looks like, you know, four Ps. It's like also like a stylized swastika or, you know, uh, the Chingons in L.A. And something of interest is that Manson would sometimes call himself the Grand Chingon, you know, so there's another uh, possible connection. Um, But, you know, I mean, even Charles Manson, um, I was uh, watching the Sons of Sam on Netflix, the documentary series, and something that they pointed out on there, which I um, did not even know, is that uh, Manson, you know, wrote a letter to Ed Sanders where he said that he had met Robert DeGrimston at who else's house but Roman Polanski's house at a party, and they show... um, like a clip of like the camera panning over this letter in uh, Manson's handwriting and you can kind of make out some parts of what the letter says. So um, that was very interesting. But yeah, I think that it's definitely possible that there was some sort of process offshoot um, that, you know, not only inspired Manson and the Manson family, but also, you know, perhaps had a role in the Son of Sam killings. And I do believe that there were multiple shooters in the Son of Sam killings. I do think that Berkowitz was part of a satanic cult, but I don't know if it would be exactly fair to call it, you know, the process church of the final judgment that is up to it. And there is also some interesting um, connections to the world of Scientology, too, which I'm not exactly sure what to make of. Because, I mean, as you guys will remember, Michael Carr was a Scientologist. Berkowitz has, has the phone numbers of, you know, all these Scientology-associated things. Um, the process church of the final judgment is a offshoot of Scientology. And, you know, if there was to be a process offshoot, which is what Berkowitz was involved with, you know, that would be, you know, some level of at least influenced by the ideals of Scientology. But yeah, I do think that there is um, some, you know, likelihood, definitely probable that whatever cult it was that Berkowitz belonged to was a... um, even more violent theological, um, had a more violent interpretation of the theology of the process church. And I also think that that is something that, you know, could have played into, you know, Manson's, I don't know what you want to call it, uh, worldview, this whole apocalyptic look at um, this kind of like Gnostic apocalypticism or, or or whatever the right phrase would be for it you know where the uh, world is coming to an end and we need to you know be like weird occult accelerationist and like bring about the end of the world and you know this blend of you know you know you know how Manson would say like I'm both Christ and the devil and you know crazy stuff like that I mean all sounds very much like it's you know lifted pretty much out of a uh, process church text and we see some of that in the son of sam killings too so yeah i definitely think that there was some sort of cult at play and i think that it's likely that it was a process uh offshoot 
but I don't think that it would be fair to say that it was the process church of the final judgment um, that that did it, you know, at least, you know, not formally. They might have informed the theology of whatever group was behind this. But also, Terry doesn't even say that there's necessarily one satanic group that is directly responsible for you know the the son of sam killings and the manson family killings and stuff like um but rather that there's a network of these different groups and something that i wish that there would have been more of in the ultimate evil and i tried to 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 the best of my ability see if there was is any possible intelligence connections um like for instance the whole son of sam name uh one of berkowitz's military buddies said that he also thought the phrase son of sam was you know kind of like a son of uncle sam you know and i thought i think that would be an interesting angle if i could have found any more evidence to you know to support that um not only was there some sort of satanic cult involved with it but if they had some sort of ties to intelligence agencies or something i think that that would really explain a lot of things you know i mean there's kind of um some stuff you know where it's rumored that possibly politicians and other powerful people are involved with the whole son of sam cult but i really would have liked to have found you know more evidence of it being involved with intelligence agencies because when we're talking about you know illegal pornography um distributing illegal firearms uh drug running and importation and stuff like that i mean all that stuff is uh you know completely uh ran by the intelligence agencies just about at least at the high higher levels you know i mean it kind of uh when it filters down isn't necessarily the case you know so um and it seems like if there was this network of you know satanic drug runners and hitmen and stuff like that it's hard for me to imagine that that kind of thing um that kind of network could exist without you know being involved or ran by the intelligence agencies itself you know it's just hard to imagine how that um would even be possible to exist without you know some sort of uh yeah just cia involvement or something like that but that's you know purely speculative um wasn't able to prove any of that but anyways um before i read the last thing for the end of the episode i will read what um mari terry ends the book uh the ultimate evil off with but before then just real quick my name's Luke Marshall. You know, you've been listening to Things Observed. If you want to follow me on Twitter, that is Thing Observer, at Thing Observer. So check me out on Twitter, and you can see all the tweet, Twitter threads that I post, anything that I post. I'll be posting one about the Son of Sam stuff. So if you want to catch some images and stuff that relate to all of this, you know, have at it. It's also a good way to figure out about when I have a new episode out there or anything like that. So, um, yeah, give me a check out on Twitter. If you like this episode, leave a good rating on Spotify or Apple podcast or whatever, help more people see it. But anyways, now I'll let Mari Terry, uh, carry us out. In 1988, the Yonkers Police Department reached a foreboding determination in its contemporary Son of Sam investigation. The verdict, which mirrored my own conclusion and that of the former Queens District Attorney, can be summed up in one word. 
It is a single word, but it enunciates volumes about the true story behind one of the biggest cases in the annals of modern crime. It is a word that will stand. It is a word that will not be altered by future events as it resonates through the corridors of criminal history in America. The word is conspiracy. I did not kill the Lord. No more reasons. I will kill the world in another form.